0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting May 8th, 2015, We'll be speaking with Lawrence Gutman, co leading the Institute's new Cuba program development, about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's groundbreaking trade mission to Havana as normalized relations come ever closer to reality. We'll also point out top stories in the new spring issue of World Policy Journal. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news
1: service. Well, the White House is stepping up its selling of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade deal with a dozen Pacific Rim nations. China is not among them, by the way. The president keeps telling anyone who'll listen that one in six American jobs is linked to trade and that those jobs tend to pay above average wages. The issue appears to be growing as the 2016 presidential campaign picks up steam. So when is the American Embassy going to open in Havana? The White House goal of having it up and running before last month's Summit of the Americas has come and gone. The delay is likely tied to Cuban anger over being listed by the State Department as a state sponsor of terrorism. The president has notified Congress of his intent to remove Cuba from that list, triggering a 45-day review. Also taking longer than expected, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's efforts to form a new government. U.S. officials speculate that Netanyahu may have to make concessions to rivals. What impact, if any, this would have on thorny issues like the Palestinians, Iran and Syria is still being evaluated. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're
0: listening to World Policy on Air. Now this.
1: Gracias y buenos tardes a todos. So it's only fitting that I am here today with my colleagues and my associates from the state of New York, uh, doing everything that we can now that we have the opportunity to finally uh, normalize relationships. It's, It's my honor, it's my pleasure, and I can't tell you how excited I am to be part of this moment in history.
0: New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in Havana last month jumped the gun at least a bit for reasons both economic and political. Although the U.S. embargo on Cuba remains in effect, Cuomo became the first U.S. governor to visit the island nation in the wake of President Obama's announcement that it would no longer be designated a sponsor of state terrorism, a dramatic step toward normalized relations, though significant hurdles remain. To consider what Cuomo's mission, with a delegation of state officials and major business leaders, may lead to For Cuba, for New York, for international trade and finance generally, we're pleased to speak with Lawrence Gutman, co-leader of a new project on Cuba for the World Policy Institute. It includes a personal visit by the Institute's Board of Directors. As a Fulbright-Hayes and Tinker Foundation fellow, Gutman has conducted research on governance and U.S. investment in Cuba. And his recent posts for the World Policy Journal blog include Cuban trade in a New York state of mind, and it's time to take the Cuban view seriously. We spoke recently about both and related developments for this podcast. Lawrence Gutman, welcome to World Policy On Air.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: The New York metro area is home to the nation's second largest Cuban-American community, you note, so politics is clearly a factor. Can we assume that segment of Cuomo's constituency is mostly for normalization?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. New York, uh, the New York metropolitan area, which I'll include Union City, New Jersey in, has about 150,000 Cubans. Um, And what we know as far as support for normalization is that over 50% of the Cuban-American community supports normalization. If you contrast that with around 1990, the number was closer to 10%. So the numbers are clearly growing, and I'm not aware of particular polling within the New York metro area, but my strong sense is that support for for normalization among Cuban-Americans in the Northeast is growing and probably at majority levels at this point.
0: But you also report that Cuomo is not alone among U.S. governors heading to Havana. Who else and how important is this state-by-state interest?
2: I think the state-by-state interest is very important because it will allow state executives and their constituents in business, as well as Cuban officials, to develop on-the-ground relations that will be especially valuable as Cuban trade policy takes shape. Um, The other governor in the U.S. who has uh, spoken openly about visiting Cuba is Terry McAuliffe from Virginia. Um, Virginia ranks third among the 39 U.S. states that export goods to Cuba, Um, and so he's going to be leading a delegation. He actually led a delegation in 2010 that didn't succeed in, in establishing contracts to sell Virginia apples to Cuba. Um, but he's the second U.S. governor who's announced uh, a trip, and that's going to be occurring later this year. Um, I think it bears mention that both Cuomo and McAuliffe are Democrats, uh, Republican governors who remain largely committed to preserving the trade embargo have not announced trade delegations. Um, Louisiana and Florida, for example, are the two leading uh, U.S. states that export to Cuba, but I wouldn't expect Governors Bobby Jindal or Rick Scott to be visiting Havana anytime soon.
0: Some familiar companies are already doing limited business in Cuba, you know, Netflix and Airbnb, for example. What are some of the major corporations in Cuomo's delegation and how important will their presence now be when trade is officially normalized?
2: The firms that are expressing clear interest in Cuba right now are the ones that will see direct benefit from the new regulations announced by the Obama administration uh, in December 2014. So on the New York delegation were representatives from JetBlue, uh, which is interested in establishing direct flights, uh, Pfizer, which is interested in expanding the export of healthcare care goods, Mastercard, which aspires to see its credit cards used wise, uh, widely throughout Cuba now that regulations on, on credit have been uh, relaxed, as well as representatives from some biotech companies and research firms that are interested in partnering with Cuban labs. Um, my suspicion is that as the regulation um, as regulations are relaxed over time, we're going to see a broader array of firms attempting to build on-the-ground relationships with Cuban officials, but thus far, the focus has really been on the companies that see an immediate business opportunity.
0: What impact will new economic prospects have on corporate lobbying of the U.S. Congress to end the embargo and on the argument that Cuba has just still not done enough on democracy and political rights?
2: Well... As I mentioned, um, opposition to the embargo is currently at an all-time high. Nearly 70% of Americans support lifting the embargo. Um, as I mentioned, over 50% of Cuban Americans oppose the embargo. Uh, that number has, has risen dramatically. And so I think that given that political reality and given the fact that it's increasingly difficult for Supporters of the embargo in U.S. Congress to mobilize constituents on, an on a pro-embargo policy, um, we're going to see corporations take a much more aggressive role. Um, there's a sense that the momentum is building, that investment is coming in the near term, certainly in the next several years, and that support for the embargo is faltering. So, for example... We recently saw a delegation from Texas, which is not a particularly anti-embargo state, um, in which agribusiness representatives traveled to Cuba just several weeks ago uh, in order to broaden their exports to the island. So even if politicians who support the embargo um, are maintaining are, are maintaining a, steadpa- a steadfast position in that regard, we're seeing. Um, economic actors begin to take action and my strong suspicion is that is, is that that's going to expand on Capitol Hill.
0: What are the big challenges for Cuba's government in facing an economic influx? Well, I think the
2: Cuban government is facing um, a fundamental challenge as as it normalizes relations with the U.S. On the one hand, the Cuban government needs capital. The Oil crisis in Venezuela, Um, the drop in oil prices is really the the reason why this entire process has taken shape on the Cuban side. Um, And so the Cuban government wants investment. They're attempting to enlarge the private sector, which is now in relative parity with the public sector in Cuba in terms of employment. But at the same time, they want to maintain their political continuity. And so the big challenge for Cuban policymakers is to manage the arrival and the expansion of U.S. capital at precisely a moment when the leadership is aging out of office. Um, And so the ball is really going to be in the Cuban court in terms of how much money they allow in and what kind of deals they develop. Um, there are a number of small-scale problems, some logistical problems, the development of a labor force that will be able to execute on new types of projects, um, the question of whether foreign investors are going to accept Cuban labor on large-scale pro- projects as, as uh, investment pours in, and there's also the, the long-standing problem of the currency system, which remains divided, and the Cuban government uh, is attempting to unify and will presumably unify within the next 12 to 18 months.
0: What do you mean um, the monetary system remains divided? Explain that.
2: Well, in the early 1990s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Soviet subsidy program to Cuba, the Cuban economy found itself on the, really on the edge of collapse. And in order to... Uh, stave off that crisis, the Cuban government began to expand the tourist sector and to try to attract tourists um, from Western Europe, from Latin America, also from the United States to visit the island. And one way they did that was to introduce what they refer to as a convertible peso, which is a complement to the national peso, um, which is currently valued around uh, 1 to 25 on the dollar. The convertible peso is valued at 1 to 1 on the dollar. And this uh, introduction was successful in terms of drawing tourists who would be able to spend their dollars, but it also created a kind of dual currency system in which ordinary Cubans with access to dollars were able to purchase more desirable goods and Cubans who only had access to uh, domestic pesos were excluded from that economic process. And the result was a, a shift toward socioeconomic stratification that Cuba had not really seen since the 1950s. Uh, it's now clear as Cuba moves toward economic integration with the United States that a dual currency system is simply not going to work on an international market. And so the Cubans have been attempting to get rid of that system and float a national currency.
0: But you warn that a capitalist flood could also introduce or now, as you ex- you've said, expand economic disparity.
2: Well, this this has been a serious concern. In fact, um, since the contraction of the public sector, we've seen the rise, for example, of begging on Cuban streets. Um, I think that the the problem that really developed, again, going back to the 90s with the tourist sector – was that those who had access to tourist dollars, taxi drivers, for example, were able to make bigger incomes than Cubans employed by the state, physicians, for example. That disparity has continued, but it's also been uh, widened by the expansion of a remittance economy in which those Cubans who have access to cash being transferred from abroad are able to procure goods that Cubans without access to remission simply aren't. And so the Cuban government is in a position in terms of managing capital where it needs to create an ample enough labor sector so that these disparities can be kept under control. And that's going to be a significant challenge.
0: Let's talk about Cuban public opinion of the new situation as measured by the first such independent survey since Castro's revolution. How extensive was that survey and how was it conducted?
2: This was a survey conducted in March uh, by Univision Noticias and the Washington Post. Um, it was led by a Miami-based public policy firm, and it's the first public policy poll, public opinion poll, ever conducted in Cuba um, and released to a global audience. 1,200 Cubans were polled across the island's 14 provinces the poll was conducted um, unbeknownst to the Cuban government, and the questions covered a broad range of economic and political concerns. It really is the first snapshot that we've gotten of Cuban public opinion um, during the post-revolutionary period, and now at a very fortuitous moment as U.S.-Cuban relations take on a very different uh, character.
0: Well, let's look at some of the details. Interestingly, the Cuban government doesn't get as much support as some of the institutions that it has developed over the years. Right. Cuban support
2: for the political system, um, at least according to the poll, is frankly less than fully enthused. Um, Only about 30% of Cuban adults hold a a positive view of the Communist Party. Um, Just under 40% hold a positive view of the Cuban system overall. Um, and almost two in three Cubans under the age of 35 believe that the single-party system should be abandoned. Um, so there's not a great deal of enthusiasm for the Cuban government as it relates to its citizens, but there is a great deal of confidence that the Cuban state will be able to weather whatever kind of storms are on the horizon. You know, only, only 24% of Cubans believe that the political system is going to change under these new conditions. Um, there's a, a strong expectation that the Cuban state will be able to to basically hold sway uh, despite the economic changes. Raul Castro has an approval rating of about 47% uh, compared with Obama's, uh, President Obama's approval rating of 80%. Um, We don't see any polling on the Cuban view toward the next generation of leaders, Uh, for example, Miguel Diaz-Canel, who's been designated as Raul Castro's heir apparent, Um, but it's clear that Cubans are not especially thrilled with the political system um, as it is today. Only about 19% of Cubans uh, claim that they speak freely about politics when they're out in public.
0: What about the threat that normalization will bring an invasion of Cuban expatriates or their heirs with claims on homes and businesses on the island?
2: This is, frankly, an extraordinary um, aspect of the poll. Only about 24% of Cubans believe that this will happen, that the Cubans who left the island during the 1960s and saw their properties expropriated will return to the island or their children and grandchildren will return and attempt to reclaim their properties. And one of the reasons this is so remarkable is that the Cuban government has attempted to use this fear as a way to really create divisions between the Cuban population and the Cuban American population. It's been one of the the pillars of, of Cuban political discourse over the last 50 years and the fact that ordinary Cubans are really not particularly concerned about the threat of businesses and homes being reclaimed speaks to a failure on the part of the Cuban system to to spread a very important part of its message.
0: Well, how has the Castro regime reacted to these poll findings and what does that tell you?
2: You know, it, it hasn't really reacted to the poll findings, which On the one hand, it's surprising because the Cuban government has often taken a pretty steadfast position against journalism that it's disagreed with, questioning the motives of authors, uh, questioning statistics. That hasn't been the case here. And I think that it's being driven by a recognition within the Cuban state that drawing additional attention to an unfavorable public opinion poll is not really going to demonstrate the capacity or the strength of the Cuban government in the eyes of its people during this very crucial diplomatic moment. So better to leave the poll to the side. My suspicion is that most Cubans have not um, heard much about this poll. This is largely data that's being received um, by an international audience, and better to just let the information lie. On the other hand, we're seeing what might be described as a gradual shift within the Cuban state to rethink its relationship with the Cuban people. One of the prerequisites for establishing diplomatic relations with the U.S. uh, on the part of the U.S. government was the release of 53 Cuban dissidents. That happened. We're seeing that Cuba's relatively small number of independent journalists have more and more latitude to report critically on the Cuban government, although certainly there's there's no such thing as a bona fide independent free press. And just two weeks ago, two dissidents passed the first round of voting in municipal elections, which is something we've never seen before. Now, whether the Cuban government is loosening its grip as part of some kind of show for international audiences remains to be seen but it seems plausible that there are some larger changes afoot. Um, And I think the Cuban government's unwillingness to criticize U.S. journalists, um, particularly the journalists who oversaw this poll, may speak to that change.
0: What role in normalization do you expect for the World Policy Institute project that you're co-leading, beginning with that visit by the WPI Board of Directors? Where will they go? Who will they see?
2: Well, members of the WPI Board of Directors will be meeting with members of Cuba's foreign ministry, National Assembly, the Association of Cuban Economists, uh, public health officials, as well as leading figures in urban planning, energy, journalism, education, the arts. It's an incredibly ambitious agenda and one that will enable members of WPI's board to begin to develop really lasting ties during a moment of significant change. Uh, Cuba is a small country, and relationships matter there and when When an institution like WPI is able to build a relationship with the University of Havana, for example, that relationship can last for for years and so I think that particularly now that we 're in this moment of transition it 's important to begin to develop relationships on the ground, to have the faces of WPI members visible in Cuba, engaging with officials um, in order to help, in order to participate in the dialogue on the Cuban side and ultimately drive this policy debate as it it
0: unfolds. And can you say, based on the relationships that you see developing, what directions uh, that policy uh, priority will go?
2: Well, clearly there's a strong sense in the United States that normalization is is coming, that it's simply a matter of time. Obviously, the embargo remains firmly in place and requires an act of Congress in order to be lifted. But as we start to see the kind of delegation that, that Governor Cuomo led, as we start to see the kind of delegation that business people from Texas are leading, as it becomes increasingly clear that trade is opening up, as more Americans are able to actually visit the island under relaxed travel restrictions, it's very difficult to believe that more and more companies and more and more individuals aren't going to engage the process. And so I think that we're going to see a continuation of this, this relatively fast moving process. There were questions about whether Cuba would be removed from the, uh, the list of state sponsors of terrorism. That happened. So the, the process is unfolding quickly and it's really going to be a question for how both the U.S. Congress deals with lobbying on the part of businesses and how the Cuban government determines it wants to manage this process, whether it wants to bring in a large amount of U.S. capital, how the Cuban government wants to engage with its trading partners in Latin America and Asia and Europe, uh, which is a significant part of the Cuban economy. Of course, Cuba is not simply a blank slate for investors. It already has extensive relationships. But the U.S. is very much joining the process of Cuban economic or joining uh, the fold of Cuban economic activity and I think that it's going to be very difficult politically and trade wise to maintain the, the embargo over the next several years.
0: Lawrence Gutman, thank you.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Lawrence Gutman is co-leader of the new project on Cuba for the World Policy Institute. As a Fulbright-Hayes and Tinker Foundation fellow, he's conducted research on governance and U.S. investment in Cuba, and his recent posts for the World Policy Journal blog include Cuban trade in a New York state of mind, and it's time to take the Cuban view seriously. In the new spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, You'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and on AIDS after the Arab Spring. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with the journal's managing editor, Jaffa Frederick, about a special World Policy Journal panel in the spring issue, considering foremost fears of the unknown on four continents. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.